Sunday. Uh, it's always a joy and pleasure to fellowship with y'all and to come with y'all into the worship of our triune God. Uh, and it's a, a, a plan that I have to continue to working through the book of 1 Thessalonians every time that I get to come and be with y'all over the next couple of months. And so we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 4 through 8. I invite you to go ahead and be turning there in your Bibles. And as we continue to look at this book, um, it's just to remind you, it's a book that was really a letter, a letter that Paul wrote to a church that he started in a town called Thessalonica. It's a, a port city in the northwest corner of the Aegean Sea, and it still exists today. You can still go to what's called Thessaloniki today, but it's the, the same area that Paul wrote to. And even though Paul started this church, he couldn't stay with it for a long time, but he cared for it. And he, so he wrote them a letter to continue to encourage them in their understanding of the gospel that he proclaimed to them. So I'm going to read for us now 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. This is God's word. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we not need say anything. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this, the word of the Lord, stands forever. I'm going to pause and pray that God would write its truths into our hearts. You're welcome to pray along with me if you'd like. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have this day to worship you and to know you. And through this time together to experience your love and closeness as you speak to us through these words and by your Spirit. We pray that you would write them into our hearts in a way that leads us in love this week. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. When our children were young, some of them had what are called night terrors. Perhaps you may have had these, or maybe some of your children did, but what a night terror is, is it's a nightmare that doesn't just happen in your mind, but it begins to get act out into your life. And so like while you're sleeping, you'll begin to cry out audibly. You'll begin to act out physically. And it's really hard as a parent to see your child in the midst of terror, in the midst of fear, and you wanna wake them up. You wanna get them out of that fearful situation that's existing in their mind. But what they tell us is that, and what we learned is if you try to like shake them or you try to like wake them, that whatever you do becomes a part of that nightmare. And so that the, the physical touch that, that you are giving them to comfort them in their mind, in their nightmare, becomes a threat. And so the way that the psychologists say that you're supposed to deal with a night terror is not to touch them. Make sure that they, they're safe, they're, they're staying in their bed, but to calmly and loudly speak to them. You are home. You are safe. You are in your bed. Mom is here with you. Dad is here with you. And to continue to speak that calmly and loudly over them 
until that voice begins to penetrate into the dream, until that voice begins to penetrate into the nightmare and soothe them and calm them. Paul, as he's writing this letter to the Thessalonians, is speaking to people that are dealing with real-life fears, real-life concerns, real-life sufferings as they have come to understand this gospel that at this time is still illegal, is still something that is being stamped out by the Roman authorities and by the people in this very city. And as Paul is writing to these people that are suffering, he wants them to have a voice that can secure them, a voice that can soothe them, a voice that can be heard in the midst of the fearful situations that they exist in. And so Paul, in the beginning of the verse that we looked at, verse 4, says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And Paul starts that way because he wants to bring into the Thessalonians' hearts, to bring into the Thessalonians' mind a sense of confidence that they are loved by God. And that's why he says, for we know brothers loved by God. Paul wants the Thessalonians to see that the most fundamental reality, the most true thing about them, something that they know and believe and view their life through, is the lens that they are loved by God. And he speaks that into their life so that the way that they view their life is always through that lens and not through the lens of fear. You may be familiar with the fact that the most common exhortation that we read in Scripture is, do not fear. In fact, there's 365 times, I didn't count, but that's what I read, I'll trust that number, 365 times that we read that phrase from God to people, do not fear, which is a fun verse-a-day calendar if you wanted to compile that. But again and again and again, 365 times you can hear the phrase, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. Why? Because that's a voice that we often listen to. That's a voice that that often speaks to us in our life, fear. And the heart of that sense of fear is that idea that, that we are not loved, that we don't know love, that we don't have confidence that we are loved people. There's a voice that comes into our life of fear that says you are going to be abandoned, you are going to be left, you are going to be uncared for, you are going to be hurt, you are going to be alone. And so again and again throughout Scripture, we see God saying, fear not, fear not, fear not, because he's like a good father standing over us in what feels like the nightmare of our life and speaking to us that I am with you. Fear not. The Apostle John tells us that the most powerful voice against fear is love, that pure love casts out all fear. And so that is why Paul is starting this writing to the Thessalonians by saying, do you know God's love? Do you know that you are loved by God? And in the way that he writes that phrase, for we know brothers loved by God, is trying to communicate a sense of confidence about that love. And we see this in the Greek tense that he chooses to speak of that love. That word loved, which sounds like past tense to us, is the perfect tense in Greek. And that perfect tense is a past action that continues into the present moment. 
And think about the implications of how Paul uses that perfect tense to to speak about the nature of God's love, that God's love is something that has already happened. It's secure. It cannot be changed. It has already happened. But it's not just that it's something that happened in the past. Wasn't it great that time that God loved us back then? No, it's already happened in the past, but that love continues into the present moment. And so he's writing that to help the Thessalonians to understand the security of God's love because God's love is certain because God's love is done. It's complete. It's not hanging in the balance based on your present actions. It's not hanging in the balance based on your present feelings. God's love has already happened. It is certain. It is finished. It is done. That love is in the past, but it's not just that it's in the past. It's still in the present, transforming you, speaking to you, speaking over you that my love is with you. But Paul wants Christians to know that God's love doesn't stop. It's secure. And we know that God's love doesn't stop Because God's love never started. Recently, in fact, Friday night, I was hanging out with some students. I was having dinner at their apartment. And this is a thing that you kind of do in campus ministry. You begin to talk about like mixture of philosophy and theology. And we were talking about the idea that God doesn't exist in time. God is outside of time. God created time. We live in time, but God is beyond time. He's above time. And so we were talking about the implications for that. And think about the implications for that in the aspect of God's love. God's love, we read in Scripture, was put on his people before the foundations of the world. God's love was given to his people before time was created. God's love existed before time. His love for his people existed before time. And what that means is that God's love does not have a start point. It's not that God kind of fell in love with you one day. He was watching you like, well, they're kind of cute. Or look at how they're trying. Or they really did something nice there. I think I'll love them. God's love didn't start. He didn't fall in love with you. What started is your understanding of God's love. But God's love didn't start because it existed before the foundations of the world. It existed before time. It existed in the past, but but what has that present experience is us coming to understand that love. But if God's love didn't start, that also means it cannot stop. It's not that God's love can get to the point where like, well, that's it. That's the last straw. They're not doing enough. They're not trying enough. They failed me one too many times. Because God's love doesn't exist in time, we experience it in time, but because his love exists in him, it can't stop. Because it never started. His love for you is. Because it always was. And it always will be. God's love is not rooted in your temporality, but his eternality. And this is what Paul is saying when he says in the perfect tense, for we know, brothers, 
loved by God. He's saying that we know, we have that confidence, knowing God's love always will be. And Paul wants us to understand this reality because it shifts the way that we relate to God. It shifts the way that we think about God. It shifts the way that we live in light of God, having that confidence in his love. And this is something that, that perhaps to you feels really normal to think about a God who loves like this. But in this time, this was incredibly radical because this is not how you related to God's. One of the primary gods that would have been present in the Greek culture and present in Thessaloniki was the god Sibeli. This is a little PG-13, I'll tell you. But the way that they worshipped the goddess Sibeli, who was a fertility god, was that they would try to become like her. And in particular, there were male priests. And the way that the male priests would have to enter into the priesthood to be able to worship this god Sibeli was to emasculate themselves in order to experience the love and the blessing of that God in this culture, you had to deform yourself, mutilate yourself, sacrifice yourself so that you could have the love of that God. And think about the stark contrast of the gospel that Paul is sharing to this people. That you don't have to sacrifice yourself, mutilate yourself so that you can experience the love of this God. But instead, there is a God who came into your world, who became like you, who sacrificed himself for you so that you would know his love. Paul came to the Greeks and preached this kind of God that would be radical, shocking to them. A God who delights to give himself to me? A God who delights to sacrifice to me? This is a completely different character than the idea of a God or goddess that they would ever have known. And Paul wants us to understand that kind of character, that kind of love, is the kind of love that this God has. One author puts it this way, God is most delighted when he is most diffusive and his pleasure in bestowing is larger than his creatures in possessing. His pleasure in bestowing is larger than his creatures in possessing. Think of that beautiful idea that God has greater joy in giving you love than you have knowing that love, and that even if you fully can understand and grasp and comprehend the depth of his love for you, the joy that you would experience pales in comparison to the joy that he has in giving you that love. And this is what Paul wants us to understand. This is what he wants the Christians in Thessalonica to understand, that that's the dynamic of the relationship between God and his people. That's why he says, for you know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. He sets his love on you. He brings you into the love that already exists. He comes to you. And that's why he continues in verse 5 to say, because our gospel came to you. 
because that's the nature of the gospel. The gospel is something that comes to you because the nature of the gospel isn't just theological ideas, isn't just philosophical ideas, isn't just religious ideas. The gospel is Jesus. The gospel is the one that comes into this world, which is what, in a sense, y'all are learning in Sunday school by studying that book, Love Came Down at Christmas. Christmas reminds us of the gospel that is Jesus, the gospel of love coming into this world in a person. Paul talks about the gospel coming because the gospel is a reflection of how God delights for his love to be diffusive, to flow into this world, to flow into his people. And Paul wants the Thessalonians to understand it because when you understand that reality, it shifts you, it changes you, it impacts the way that you live. You see, the Greeks had this idea that they had to first become like the God in order to worship it. They had to first become like the God in order to receive the God's love. But Paul is painting a different picture, that that love first comes to you, that love first is poured into you. But through that, something does happen. Through that, something changes you so that you do become like that God. That you do begin to reflect that God's character. In a sense, that's what we were looking at a bit last week when we were reflecting upon those three virtues that Paul says flow out of a life that comes when someone comes to understand the love of God. The three virtues of faith and love and hope. And so Paul wants us to understand that, that understanding the love of God changes us, which is why he says that our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power. Not just word, power. What's the difference between those two things? Not just word, but power. This is something that I see on campus a lot because on campus I have a lot of people who have this idea of Christianity, this knowledge of Christianity. They've grown up perhaps in the church or they've grown up in a Christian culture so that they probably have an idea of God that is shaped by the Christian message. And if they think about God, they think of kind of a biblical God. And if they think about Jesus, they think of him in a Christian way, that, that he is a God. But what often I see happen in the student's two to four years, sometimes five, on campus, is that those words begin to hit into their heart. And what were things that they would have said, things that they would have professed, things that they were taught, begins to have a power in their life. They begin to be changed by those words. So that it's not just things that they say on their lips, but it begins to shape the way that they interact with their roommates, interact with their friends, interact with their parents, interact with themselves, interact with the world. And this is what Paul's wanting us to see, that, that the, the gospel, as it came to the Thessalonians, it, it was words that they heard. It was truths that they began to assent to in their mind, but, but it doesn't just stay in their mind. It began to get down into their life in power and transform their life. It began to shape them to resemble the message that they heard. It began to shape them to live out a life that reflects the God that they have come to know. And so Paul begins to kind of sense unpack, in a sense, what this looks like in their life. And it, and it reflects, in a sense, those virtues of faith, hope, and love. And so as Paul is talking about how this power came into their life, he says, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit 
and with full conviction. Here Paul is saying, listen, brothers, you heard this message and it wasn't something that, that you kind of wondered about, but it, it hit your heart in a way of a full conviction, of confidence, of belief that, that this is true, that this is reality, that this is more true than anything else in the world, that there's this full conviction that enabled them to trust in God's love. But the beautiful thing is, is that he sees this full conviction as something that didn't just come from themselves, but it came through God. As he says, it came in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And the beautiful thing about that is because this is what we need to see. The way that you grow in faith, the way that you grow in conviction, the way that you grow in confidence in God's love is not apart from God, but through God. This is something that I, I see a lot with students that struggle with doubts. When they're struggling with doubts, when they're lacking that conviction, they often think that they have to go and find that apart from God. So a lot of times they, they won't want to pray because they feel guilty about their doubts, or they won't want to talk to people about it because they, they feel a sense of shame about their doubts. So they, they, in times when they are doubting, think, well, maybe I need to stop coming to RUF, or maybe I need to stop going to church, or maybe I need to stop going to read my Bible in the mornings until I kind of figure this out. Their doubts are something they think they have to fix on their own. But how does Paul tell us we get that full conviction? How does he tell us that our, our faith grows? It's with the Holy Spirit. It's with the Holy Spirit who comes to be with us, to speak into us, to speak into our doubts, God's love. Which again is what Romans 8 tells us, that the Spirit with our spirit teaches us to cry, Abba, Father that God sends himself in a sense into the nightmare of our doubts so that he can speak into the nightmare of our doubts, his love. How do we grow in faith? It's not apart from God, it's with God. How do we deal with our doubts? It's not apart from him, it's with him. Bringing to him our doubts, our fears, our concerns so that we learn that his love is the foundation for our confidence. Fear can undermine our faith, but God's love is given to us to be a resource for our faith, to be a resource for our doubts. And it's not just the idea of his love. It's the experience of his love, knowing that even in those doubts, that God is right there with you through his spirit, saying, do you hear me? you see me? I am with you. I love you. Hear my voice. Paul wants us to have that full confidence that comes from God speaking into our life, his love. But he continues, he says, and you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Here again, Paul is helping to bring out a picture of how those virtues of faith and love and hope can get seen in a life as, as that word of the gospel becomes a power in someone's life. And he's saying that in a sense, you saw this in me. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. 
Here Paul's describing how Paul and, and Timothy and Sylvanius, as they were present with the Thessalonians, were, were examples of a love that cared for these people, that served them, that, that gave them an example, a window into what God's life looked like. My life, in a sense, Paul says, proved something to you. And what did it prove? It proved that, that God's love was true. Because the way that Paul lived with them and among them was as someone that served them, sacrificed for them, gave them love. And the fact that he gave love, the fact that he sacrificed for them, the fact that he cared for them, spoke to them about the nature of God's love, that God's love was real and true. Paul lived out a sacrificial love for them and in a very way demonstrated that God's love was real. But the challenge to that love is always the cost of fear. The challenge to that love is always the sense that I'm going to lose more than I gain. And so Paul continues and he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. Paul knows that there's this dynamic that exists in the midst of stepping into love, that, that it's going to be costly, that it's going to be sacrificial. And he even brings this out to them and saying that you saw this in my life. You saw the way that, that my love came out of much affliction. My love came out of much cost. And if you go and read the book of Acts right before the time that he came to Thessalonica, Paul lived this reality out. This would have been fresh on his mind after he... Uh, entered into Thessalonica to speak out of this reality. In Acts chapter 16, we see Paul reflect this in the fact that he was imprisoned. And while he was imprisoned, he was uncertain about his life. But in the midst of his time in prison, what did Paul do? He, he found the opportunity to, in that prison, find joy by singing. He would sing over and over to himself about God and, and to the others about God and his goodness. And while he was in the midst of that prison, as he was singing, which is not what I would do, singing praises, I'd be singing the blues. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. But Paul in prison sang praises to God, and then all of a sudden, an earthquake happens. His chains come off, the door gets open. It would seem that God was giving him a reprieve from his suffering. But you know what Paul did? He didn't leave prison. His freedom was right there. He could walk out of jail, but he didn't leave prison. Why did he not leave prison? It was love. Because he knew that if he would leave prison, the jailer would be put to death. And we see this in Acts when, when the jailer comes rushing to the prison after this earthquake to check to make sure that his prisoners are there and he sees the door open. He immediately takes a sword and he's about to kill himself. But Paul says, stop, we're all here. And in that moment, the jailer says, what kind of love is this? And through that comes to believe in Christ. Why? Because Paul reflected to him a different way of living in this world, a different kind of love that, that embraces suffering, embraces affliction with joy out of love. And through that, the jailer became a Christian. And that's the context that Paul comes into Thessalonica, bringing that kind of approach to life, that I am going to embrace suffering, I'm going to embrace affliction if my suffering and my 
affliction can bring love into the life of others. And why is he like that? Because that's the nature of God's love. Who embraces affliction, who embraces suffering so that his love can be diffused, his love can flow out of him into us. That kind of power worked into Paul's life and enabled him when he stepped into Thessalonica to love like that. And as that love was shown to the jailer, and as it was shown to the Thessalonians, they believed. And through that, Paul says, you became imitators of us and, the, and of the Lord. They too began to embrace this kind of love. And so as we read in the book of Acts, as they began to suffer, as they were brought into the middle of the town, as they were beaten, as they had money demanded from them, they didn't let go of God's love, but they held on to God's love because they believed that God's love was more true, more powerful than the suffering and the affliction that they felt. It was working powerfully. It wasn't just a word, it was a power that was present in their life that enabled them to imitate the God that they had come to believe. That enabled them to embrace suffering and affliction because they began to believe that love flowing out of us was greater than love flowing into us. The poet Lucy Shaw has a very short poem called Forecast. And it says simply this, Planting seeds inevitably changes my feelings about rain. Planting seeds inevitably changes my feelings about rain. It's a powerful idea, right? And when you plant a seed, you begin to want rain to happen. Like as a kid, you didn't want rain to happen, right? Because you wanted to go out and play. But once you plant that seed, you begin to want rain to happen. You begin to pray for rain to happen. You get excited about rain happening because you know that that comes into the ground and it breaks the ground and it brings life out. In a sense, this is how the word becomes a power in us. It changes the way that we view suffering in our life, affliction in our life. We begin to see it in a different frame because we're looking at it through the lens of God's love. We're not looking at it through the lens of what we are missing. We're looking at it through the lens of what God is doing. How is my suffering going to be a seed that God is watering that's going to bring forth life? And this is the way that, that Paul wants us to think, that, that what we're doing in our life is going to be used by God, that even the suffering, the afflictions, the hardships, and the trials are going to be used by God. He wants us to have hope whenever we view whatever trial, whatever circumstance that we have in our life that drives us to not view our particular moments through the lens of God has left us, God has abandoned us, but always the, through the lens of hope. What is it that God is going to do through this? So that he goes on to say, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Paul's saying, 
Just as my suffering and affliction brought you to be able to understand God's love, your suffering and affliction has been used by God to, to allow the gospel to go forth all around so that I go to places and I tell them about Jesus and I'm like, oh yeah, we heard about Jesus. Because we heard about the way that the Thessalonican Christians were enduring suffering and affliction and still holding fast to the gospel. Paul is wanting them to see the way that, that God is using their suffering to bring life, to bring fruit, so that they continue with that confidence of hope that says that, that whatever comes into my life, I know that it is for good because I know that God loves me. The voice of fear is always present in our life, undermining our faith, undermining our confidence and ability to love because it ultimately tries to undermine our hope that God is at work, that God is alive, that God is good. But what God does again and again to us is comes to us and speaks to us the love that we need to continue with hope love that we need to continue with confidence. A beautiful example uh, of this to me that I keep coming back to in my mind over and over again is the book of Daniel. You may be familiar with Daniel from Daniel in the lion's den, but you may not have ever read the second half of the book of Daniel's, which is less stories and a lot of crazy visions. And the visions are, are intense, and the visions were given to Daniel in a way that, that caused him to feel like these were nightmares and they would weaken him. And in Daniel chapter 10, he recounts one of those experiences and he has this heavenly visitor that's coming to explain those nightmares. And in Daniel chapter 10, he speaks this to the visitor. He says, Oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. So powerful were the visions that literally he felt pain. He literally had no strength. And so he goes on to say, How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. And then it says this, Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said to me, O oh man, greatly loved, Fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. Oh man, greatly loved. That's what God gave to Daniel. In the midst of his weakness, seeing the future and the fearful things that would come into his people and come into this world, what does God do? He comes and he touches him and he says, oh man, greatly loved. Because God knows best what Daniel needed in his weakness. God knows best what Daniel needed in his fear. God knew best what Daniel needed when his breath was taken away because of the pain that was in front of him. What he needed most was to hear that he was greatly loved. And this is what God does in our life. He comes and he puts his hand gently on us and he says, Oh child, greatly loved so that it can give into us the peace that we need, the, the strength that we need, the courage that we need in order to endure in the hardships of life. 
And the beautiful thing is, is that this isn't something that just us need, but God himself needed this in the person of Jesus. Every time that Jesus was about to endure intense suffering, like the temptation and like the cross, God comes to him and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And if Jesus needed to hear that voice, how much more do we? But that's a part of the beauty of the cross. The beauty of the cross is there. He heard the silence of God. He lost that voice. So that we would never lose that voice. So that we would always know that everything that happens to us is for our good. And that we always have confidence that our Father is standing right by us, speaking calmly and loudly, O child greatly loved. And as we hear that voice, those words become a power. Those words become a power that shape us to be like this God that enables us to live like this God. Because what is guiding us is not our own voice. What is guiding us is not our own strength, but the strength of His voice speaking to us. O oh, child, greatly loved. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You that You speak to us words of love so that we can know that we are loved by God. And we thank you for the gift that that is. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.